From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. On today's show, we look at Ireland's push to get their hate laws through and how it affects the rest of the world. More fallout with COVID vaccines as Brooke Jackson, Pfizer whistleblower, asks, how much more fraud can we show? As COP28 continues, junk science founder Steve Malloy explains the Chinese tactics to subvert the US on green economics. And the former World Bank president exposes the US Fed's behaviour as a virtual hedge fund and an Israeli doctor exposes the level of trauma suffered by Israeli hostages taken in the battle on October 7. As we begin our coverage today with Al Jazeera's correspondent in Gaza, Moulman El Sharafi has found out that his father, mother and 20 other family members were killed in an Israeli bombing at the Jabalia camp. Just days before his mother sent him a message hoping they would see each other soon. With more, here is his colleague Tariq Abu Azam reporting on the attacks in the north of Gaza. I would like to send my uh, my condolences to our friend and colleague Mohamed Ishrafi for the loss of his parents, a number of his siblings, alongside with the wives and their children, in an airstrike that destroyed the building that they were taking shelter inside in Jabalia refugee camp. Uh, may they rest in peace as the Israeli attacks on the north and across the territory has intensified during the last couple of hours and since the early beginning of this round of fighting. Uh, Mohamed Ishrafi family were, were, uh, was one of the Palestinian families who did not find any safe shelter out uh, and any safe passage to evacuate to uh, Rafah or to the south of the, of the Gaza Strip. And they have been living under very intense bombing for more than 60 days until they have been killed by the Israeli fires. We have also contacted a number of residents inside Jabalia refugee camp earlier today in order to check on the situation on the ground. They told us that the situation there is very dire as they are really uh, facing a, a very notable shortage of food, water, and even they did not find any medical uh, drug to be obtained in order to cure themselves from illness and even uh, diseases. So the situation uh, on the ground in the north of the Gaza Strip can, uh, continues to be very complicated and complex as the Israeli occupation forces are expanding the military operation uh, into Jabalia. Al Jazeera News is also reporting that Israeli news itself expressing doubts and a fracture between Israel and the US as the US is pushing Israel to lessen its strikes and damage in its war against Hamas, while at the same time sending in more aid. But the divide is also concerning what happens to Gaza after the war eventually ends with Israel not interested in a two-state solution, whilst the rest of the world seemingly is. Let's now join this reporting. On Israel's right-wing Channel 14, an acknowledgement that relations between the Netanyahu-Biden government are very strained. Also, a justification for the intensity of Israel's bombardment of Gaza. The center-right news website Wala wrote, The Biden administration has been pressuring Israel for several days to significantly increase the scope of humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. The fact that Israel needs backing and support from the U.S. for a ground operation in the southern Gaza Strip makes it very difficult for the government to ignore the American request. Israeli state broadcaster Khan broke the story of a closed-door meeting between Netanyahu and members of the Knesset, 
where the Prime Minister reportedly said, not only will there not be a renewed Palestinian Authority in Gaza after the war, there will also be no Palestinian Authority in Gaza at all. Khan reminded readers of US President Joe Biden's op-ed in the Washington Post last month, in which he wrote that after the war in Gaza, the Palestinian Authority should be the governing body there. The disconnect and disagreement between the US and Israel on post-war plans for Gaza look to be widening. The body of a former Ukrainian opposition lawmaker, Ilya Kiva, has been found in the Moscow region, Russian media reported Wednesday. The politician was known as a staunch critic of President Vladimir Zelensky. Kiva's body was reportedly found on the grounds of the Velik Country Club Hotel near a cottage where he was residing. He was allegedly lying face down in a pool of blood in deep snow, several Russian media outlets reported, citing law enforcement sources. The man suffered a wound to the head, according to TASS, citing its source, Ukrainian military intelligence spokesman. Andrei Yusov later stated that the Ukrainian security services were behind the attack, news outlet Strana reported. Other media claimed that the country's domestic security service, the SBU, orchestrated the assault. Russian officials have not commented on the incident so far. Kiva was a Ukrainian MP from 2019 to 2022 and a member of the opposition platform For Life Party, which was officially banned by Kiev in June of 2022. Kiva himself was a fierce critic of Ukrainian President Zelensky and the government's pro-NATO policies. In a 2022 interview, he slammed the US and NATO for, as he said, using Ukraine as bait to provoke Russia into a conflict. Politician left Ukraine not long before the start of Russian military action in February of 2022, moving first to Spain and then to Russia. Ukraine stripped him of his mandate in mid-March 2022, less than a month after the start of Moscow's operation. Ukrainian law enforcement also charged him with state treason the same month, accusing him of doing everything to invite the Russian aggressors to the country. He was eventually sentenced in absentia to 14 years behind bars in Ukraine. His last social media post dated Wednesday morning. Kiva accused Zelensky of drowning the Ukrainian people in blood, adding that fleeing abroad or committing suicide would be the only two options for him since the US Senate has yet to approve a bill to fund further Ukraine military aid. And an unidentified explosive device detonated inside a vehicle, the Russian investigative committee confirmed after a car blew up in the Donbass city of Lugansk, killing a former MP of the Lugansk People's Republic, Oleg Popov. Popov's death was confirmed by LNR MP Yuri Yurov. The regional health ministry's head, Natalia Poshenko, said that a team of medics that rushed to the scene after the blast were only able to retrieve the man's charred body. According to Russian media, it was the second assassination attempt against the former lawmaker who had applied earlier, served with the LNR's People's Militia after the Donbass Republic declared its independence from Kiev. And relations between Russia and the UAE are at an all-time high, President Vladimir Putin said during his state visit to Abu Dhabi on Wednesday. Speaking at a welcoming ceremony hosted by UAE President Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, the Russian leader praised the thriving business and energy ties between the two countries. Today, thanks to your stance, our relations have reached an unprecedentedly high level, Putin stated. Russian president described the UAE as Moscow's main trade partner in the Arab world, noting that turnover between the pair had increased by 67% in 2022 and expressing hope that this trend would accelerate. 
Putin further stated that the two countries are actively expanding industrial cooperation while being involved in several major joint oil and gas ventures. They also cooperate as part of the OPEC Plus oil group. He added, on the diplomatic front, the Russian leader remarked that the two sides would discuss current tensions around the world, in particular the Israel-Hamas war, but also the Ukraine conflict. President Sheikh Mohammed described relations with Russia as historic, noting that they are developing in numerous areas to the benefit of both nations. After his visit to the UAE, Putin is expected to hold talks with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh later on Wednesday. According to the Kremlin, the pair will discuss bilateral cooperation in trade, economic and investment areas, as well as regional and international issues. Meanwhile, Turkish President Erdogan is said to visit we set to visit Greece, rather, and sign a series of agreements, but differences still remain between the two countries. Issues that have brought Greece and Turkey to the brink of war five times in as many decades will be off the agenda during his visit to Athens on Thursday. The visit is an attempt to reset the relationship with positive agreements, Greek diplomats have said. Greece said and Turkey have been discussing 31 potential areas of cooperation since 2021. The so-called positive agenda will be centre stage, foreign ministry officials told Al Jazeera, leading to an about a dozen separate agreements. One accord will see the construction of a new bridge over the Evros River in Thrace, with, uh, which forms the border between the two countries. Another will promote student exchanges, an official said on condition of anonymity. While undersea hydrocarbons have divided the two neighbours, other forms of energy could unite them. One accord will lead to the construction of a new electricity interconnector to trade energy. Other agreements will promote joint initiatives in tourism, sport and among small businesses. Some military agreements were also lined up. There will be a series of agreements on confidence building measures. For example, not flying drones over warships while war games are taking place. Angelo Siragos, an MP with the new ruling Democracy Party, said, Prime Minister Kyriakos, my friend, we won't threaten you if you don't threaten us, Erdogan told the Katharmarini newspaper in an interview published on the eve of the visit. Let's strengthen the trust between our two countries. Let's increase bilateral cooperation in all areas, Erdogan said. And rescue workers in Zambia have pulled out the first survivor of a December 1 landslide that inundated an open pit copper mine and trapped at least 25 people working there, the disaster management unit said on Wednesday. The rescue team also retrieved one body which had yet to be identified, the disaster management and mitigation unit said in a statement posted on Facebook. Zambia's President Hokayand Hilchema said on Tuesday he was still hopeful that the trapped miners who were working there without a permit were still alive as rescue efforts continued. It was still not clear how many miners had been trapped, but Mines Minister Paul Cabasway said on Monday 25 families had so far come forward to claim missing relatives who were working when the accident happened. With more, we joined this report. They are worried about their missing colleagues. A mudslide at an open-cast copper mine in Zambia buried miners last week. Several are believed to be trapped underground. Those who escaped show how they squeezed through narrow tunnels to get in and out of the mine. This one was on interest, so he managed to escape, mm. run away. The owners of these mining companies should stop enticing our children to work for only $200. The government should punish people who employ our children and expose them to such harsh conditions. 
government officials say the miners still trapped are in three locations. As Commander-in-Chief, I thank my own forces, my own command structure, the military men and women in uniform working with us, the civilians, for one job only, to retrieve our brothers and sisters down there. Heavy rains flooded the pit. Rescue teams are trying to pump out the water. The unstable ground is making search and rescue efforts even more difficult. Harumutasa, Al Jazeera. More than 50 civilians were killed in attacks in Ethiopia in November, denounced the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. On Wednesday, two weeks after negotiations between the government and the Oromo Liberation Army ended without agreement, Classified as a terrorist organisation by Addis Ababa, the OLA has been fighting the Ethiopian authorities since its split with the historic Oromo Liberation Front in 2018, when the latter renounced armed struggle that year when current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power. According to the EHRC, a statutorily independent public institution, OLF fighters killed 17 people and burned villages in northwest Ethiopia. The EHRC also claimed that a further 30 people were killed in the RC zone of Oromia in a series of attacks by unidentified assailants, victims including several members of the same family. All the attacks took place between November 23 and 29 after negotiations between the government and the OLA ended without agreement in Tanzania on the 21st of November, with both parties blaming each other. Estimated at a few thousand men in 2018, its numbers have greatly increased in recent years, although observers consider it insufficiently organised and armed to represent a real threat to Ethiopia's federal power, even though the capital is hemmed in, Oromia. The Oromo people's region stretches from centre to south and east to west, covering around a third of Ethiopia's territory is home to around a third of the 120 million inhabitants of Africa's second most populous country. It is plagued by multifaceted violence, making the situation extremely confusing. Internal political struggles, territorial disputes and animosities between communities combined with the recent development of armed banditry. And three people were killed and another is in critical condition after police responded to an active shooter at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Wednesday, police have announced. The shooting suspect is also dead, according to the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. At least three victims were shot and the extent of their injuries is so far unknown, according to Las Vegas Metro. University police have first responded to reports of shots fired before noon in Beam Hall, which is located near the Lee Business School in the vicinity of the Student Union building, warning them to run, hide and fight. Las Vegas police confirmed that one suspect who has not been identified is dead. The LA Metro, El Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Sheriff Kevin McCahill gave a press conference at 1.30 p.m. local time when he confirmed that there is no further threat to the community. We have no idea on the motive though. He added, three victims were sent to Sunrise Hospital Trauma Center in the city. One victim was sent to Sunrise Hospital Trauma Center also, according to CNN, the UNLV campus is about two miles from the Las Vegas Strip and across from Harry Reid International Airport. Roughly 30,000 students attend the school. And coming up after the break, an Israeli doctor explains the depth of trauma suffered by Israeli hostages caused by Hamas. This is Compass on TNT Radio.
TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media, like Telegram, who have reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40 California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a $1,000 a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%. You know, 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people are saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. You have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them. This is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back. Ireland's renewed interest in the revised hate speech laws was spurred by recent rioting in Dublin following the stabbing of three children and an early childhood worker outside of a school in November. It follows considerable concern raised about the draft legislation earlier in the year. 
Ireland's Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill 2022 is a startling blueprint for authoritarianism, threatening jail time for the possession of memes and even reversing Ireland's constitutionally guaranteed presumption of innocence. It's since been revealed that the suspect in the stabbing, an Irish national from Algeria, was arrested earlier in the year for knife possession. The riots prompted Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar to encourage a review of Ireland's hate speech legislation. I think it's now very obvious to anyone who might have doubted us that our incitement hatred legislation is just not up to date. It's not up to date for the social media age. We need that legislation through and we need it through in a matter of weeks because it's not just the platforms that have a responsibility here and they do. It's also the individuals online that stir up hatred and violence. We need to be able to use laws to go after them individually. To say the devil is in the detail for the legislation is an understatement, as the bill doesn't even bother with the subtlety of nuance. The criminal justice bill represents a pernicious reversion to the mid-20th century authoritarianism and is truly a frightening document. It omits in a scary of intentional obfuscation of detail the threshold and definition of what action may constitute hatred, as opposed to, say, less emotive levels of annoyance. Comically, the bill defines hatred as hatred. It doesn't bother to alleviate concerns regarding the subjectivity and perception of emotion, noting that hatred is hatred against a person or a group of persons in the state or elsewhere, an account of their protected characteristics or any one of those characteristics. The Attorney General even stifled providing a more stringent definition that would keep the innocent out of jail and those who intend on inciting violence in jail on the advice of the Attorney General for the purpose of legislation, hatred takes on its ordinary meaning as opposed to beginning the set out as a definition as it is a concept that is universally understood. Here is journalist Michael Schellenberger with more. It sounds like a Black Mirror episode. The police can enter your home unannounced search your phone and computers, and arrest you for the things that you're reading, watching, or posting online. If you refuse, you could be sentenced to 12 months in prison. But it's not a Black Mirror episode. It's worse than that. It's real life. At this very moment, the government of Ireland is trying to pass a law before Christmas that will let the police go into people's homes and confiscate their phones and computers. Now, you might think Ireland doesn't matter, that it could disappear tomorrow without much impact. But Ireland does matter. It's the test case for the next phase of the global crackdown by military and intelligence forces and their agents that's been happening over the last seven years. What they used to call a conspiracy theory has now been confirmed as true. Our research has exposed a far-reaching plan by military and intelligence agencies in the United States, Britain, and other nations to subvert the democratic process and engage in activities that have a basis in military techniques and which are tantamount to attempts at thought control. This isn't about censoring the far right. This is about censoring independent journalism. And if you're in Ireland, this is about censoring you. One understandable response to all this is to ignore it and hope it goes away or wish that it won't affect you. And maybe it won't, but our ancestors fought and died for the right to speak our truths, particularly about controversial cultural and political issues. And already we're fighting back and making progress. The Irish government was forced to back off this law once already and we can make them back off again. Free thinkers in the United States and around the world must stand up now for Ireland. We have to fight the totalitarians over there so that we don't have to fight them over here. We need to send a message to the politicians and the police that the world stands with the people of Ireland and their first and fundamental right. Please share this message and consider donating to a special free speech fund 
at censorshipindustrialcomplex.org. If we don't act now, our children and grandchildren will look back at this moment and ask why we didn't do more while we still had a chance. So please get involved now and stop this Black Mirror episode from becoming real life. A doctor treating freed Israeli hostages held by Hamas in Israel says survivors are suffering from an unprecedented level of extremely severe psychological abuse enduring captivity. She spoke on Trey Gowdy's show on Fox. She describes the treatment of Israeli hostages as they were isolated and abused, including being given psychiatric drugs and were kept in total darkness for days. Here is Dr. Eitan describing conditions she says have never been seen before in medical literature. We have been treating over 15 uh, patients who came back from the Hamas captivity at the Tel Aviv Medical Center. And I can tell you that on behalf of all the medical and psychological teams treating those who return, um, the mental states we encounter have no um, precedent um, in medical literature. We feel that we have to rewrite the textbooks of post-trauma. You have to remember that as far as we know, the Red Cross has not visited nor assisted those who were held captive. And there is evidence of severe physical and mental abuse. Those held captive were subject to starvation, to beating, to sexual abuse. Um, they, they were being held in inhumane sanitary conditions. Extremely severe psychological abuse was inflicted on them, including, including separation from family members, separation of siblings, separations of children from their mothers. They were held in solitary confinement and spent long days in total darkness until they developed severe hallucinations. Children were forced to watch brutal videos. They were under constant threats by weapons and threats to harm them even after they were released. They report the use of forced use of psychiatric um, drugs and other substances. And it is clear to us now that we must must act to release all of the hostages as soon as possible, since the cruel abuse of them in the captivity of Hamas is inhumane and intolerable. We have indications that some of the hostages are in a bad mental state and might even hurt themselves. So we now start with an integrative physical and mental rehabilitation action that are required in the treatment of those who were released from the captivities. Some of the homecomers, they look happy, they look fine, they look physically fine, and we try to hold on to those optimistic signs. But still, even um, those who seem fine, we know that most of them suffer from severe post-traumatic symptoms. They have painful traumatic memories, and they are entering into dissociative states where for a moment they feel as if they were still in captivity and only later do they return to the understanding that they have been released. They experience difficulties falling asleep and staying asleep and suffer from nightmares at night. They report paralyzing fear and hypersensitivity to any sound or trigger that reminds them of their time in captivity. And some of them have already developed depression and psychosis. And coming up after the headlines, the left cry foul at COP28 as climate economic realities emerge. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio.live. This station, the first to broadcast. Breaking news. 
TNT Radio News. For TNT Radio News, this is James O'Neill. Three people are dead and one critically injured after a gunman opened fire at the University of Nevada's campus. Las Vegas police said the gunman is also dead. New Zealand's National Air Carrier has purchased a next-generation all-electric aircraft to be used for cargo services in conjunction with mail provider NZ Post. Close to 1,700 electric vehicles manufactured in China will be recalled in Australia due to a programming issue that could lead to an electric arc, posing a potential risk of injury. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Crikey, a left-wing news service is complaint reporting on COP28. As with previous UN climate conferences, the 28th Conference of the Parties in Dubai is riddled with fossil fuel lobbyists, it argues. Associated Press reported that at least 1,300 representatives of fossil fuel companies are at the conference. Unusually, the representation extends to the conference president, with the chair of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, leading the event. Who intends to use the conference to negotiate oil and gas deals, argues Crikey. Other groups attending in large numbers are auditors and consultants. According to the official list of participants, KPMG globally has 64 people, PwC 51, Deloitte 47, Ernst & Young 60, McKinsey 59 and Boston Consulting Group 19. Most, including some of the firm's global chairs, are attending as guests of governments. Meanwhile, junk scientist Steve Malloy last week sat down on American thought leaders and described the situation facing the United States as it gets run over by China in green economics. It is the... Uh, like the left throws out the economics for ideology over assumed temperature heating up the earth. So I ask, who are the real cookers, therefore? Here is Steve Malloy speaking to Jan Jakiliak, explaining how China is using climate to subvert the United States. China is using climate to subvert the United States. Uh, China has gotten the United States and, and Western Europe and really all, all, all the developed countries uh, hooked on green technology, you know, uh, uh, to a great extent, uh, solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles all depend on China. And, you know, I think their strategy is uh, to, to get the, the Western world dependent on China for technology. They, you know, uh, give lip service to climate. Uh, they, they expect Western countries to go wind and solar and reduce fossil fuel emissions. Uh, they don't think they're responsible for, you know, so-called, you know, historic global warming. They think the United States is, the developed world is. So the, so, so the developed world has to go first, in their view. Uh, you can take any, you know, technology you want, wind, solar, uh, electric vehicles. Um, they all depend on rare earth minerals, which we basically no longer mine in the West because it's very dirty. You know, rare earths, it's not that they're rare. It's just that they're um, present in, in soil at very low concentration. So you have to strip mine to do this. Well, you can't strip mine in any, any Western country anymore, but you can strip mine in China. They have no environmental regulations. Um, so China has volunteered to do this. Uh, China also processes the vast majority of rare earths into usable forms, like 85% of rare earths. And all these rare earths go into uh, wind technology, solar technology, EVs, as well as our, our uh, cell phones and computers. Uh, so I mean, it's just, you know, 
the whole world really depends on China for this. Um, in, in the case of EVs in particular, China is the sole producer of the refined graphite that goes into every EV battery. So if China right now was to stop exporting um, refined graphite, there would be no EV batteries made. So, so we are right now completely dependent on China. There's really, there are some firms, there are some firms trying to get into the graphite business, for example, but that is years away, because right now China controls all the graphite. It's extremely frustrating to see our politicians uh, with these wind mandates and solar mandates and EV mandates. You know, President Biden wants to ban gas-powered cars. California is banning gas-powered cars. Virginia is moving that way. Uh, New Jersey, you know, states are moving to ban gas-powered cars uh, as sort of a mandate for EVs. But, well, where are the EVs going to come from? How are we going to make them if if uh, we don't have a good relationship with China? So, and, and, and you know, if we want to defend Taiwan, for example, how could we do that? Because if, if we were to act aggressively towards China or to object to what they're doing, uh, they'll just cut off our supply of, of graphite or rare earths and where are we going to be? Uh, and I mean, this goes way beyond the green agenda, but you know, I, 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 I focus on wind and solar and EVs things, so that's what's at top of my mind. But you know, it also applies to phone, cell phones and, and computers and all kinds of technology. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the US will bear the blame should Ukraine be defeated on the battlefield if additional aid isn't approved by Congress. The American funds are utterly essential to Kiev, Yellen told the press while on a visit to Mexico City. The delay of US war funding exposes Kiev to a big risk to lose this war. President Vladimir Zelensky's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, warned at the US Institute of Peace this week. Throwing good money after bad is the new modus operandi for the US. Meanwhile, here is former president of the World Bank, David Malpass, explaining what the US Fed is up to and why it has too much power. The Fed basically has become now just a giant hedge fund. It's lost a trillion dollars, you know, and counting. It's going to be a, a gigantic loss. What it does is borrows money at 5.4% from banks and then dumps it into government bonds. So think what that trade does. That causes the government to think that it's better off than it is. And so that encouraged and uh, the government to be short when rates were zero. So why did the government leave, you know, borrow so much in T-bills? Uh, well, because the Fed was buying the bonds and it made it look like yields were going to stay low for long. Remember the low for long phrase. Uh, so we've got these multiple problems that are going on and it, it uh, endangers the dollar. So that's the basic case. So as the banks get squeezed out, because they're lending so much to the Fed, uh, you, you know, it's literally, it it's literally a floating rate loan from banks to the Federal Reserve so it can buy government bonds. So if that were freed up, uh, that would allow uh, the banks to, to at least consider a small business loan, an inventory loan, the kinds of things that help the economy grow. And this is on a global basis. It's not just the Fed. It's uh, all, all the major central banks doing the same thing, meaning taking money from the economy in order to buy government bonds. We need to be clear on that. I, I heard the previous segment, they talk about money printing. There isn't any money printing on it. It's just money borrowing, and they pay top dollar for it. The Fed pays 5.4 to banks and 5.3 to money market funds, so to, to the Fidelity and Van, uh, Vanguard and so on. When it comes to sport, this is Compass on TNT Radio. 
With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Facts matter. And the fact is that until the COVID-19 genetic therapy injections hit the scene, we didn't have thousands of young athletes dying in competition, in training, or home asleep in their beds. We didn't blame things like a previously undiagnosed genetic cardiac anomaly, or taking too cold a shower, or walking too briskly to class. And the fact is that it wasn't Israelis that kidnapped Palestinian Olympic athletes in Munich and murdered them. It wasn't Israelis that blew up nightclubs in Berlin and Indonesia. It wasn't Israelis that drove a truck through a Christmas parade in Wisconsin or shot up a Christmas market in Germany. It wasn't Israelis that stabbed to death festival goers in Stockholm. It wasn't Israelis that did these things. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. At first, like so many other women out there, I ignored my symptoms. A slight pressure on my chest, shortness of breath. I thought, I don't have time to be sick. I had a, a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. I'm so grateful to the American Heart Association. Their research helped save my life. I can enjoy life with my children, my grandchildren, and my friends. Please, listen to your heart. The only reason I'm here today is because I did. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. This, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. A pair of transgender women won gold and silver in a female cycle race in Illinois over the weekend. Tessa Johnson and Evelyn Williamson who were both born male, beat out all the opposition at the Illinois State Cycle Cross Championships on Saturday. The news sparked anger from female sports advocates and political commentators. The two transgender cyclists have once again snagged first and second place at a major women's competition, with some calling their victories outrageous and an assault on the rights of biological female riders. Tessa Johnson, 25, took first place in the women's single speed category at the Illinois State Cycle Cross Championships Sunday, while Evelyn Williamson, 30, placed second. Johnson previously competed in men's categories at Clemson University, but it was only after switching to compete as a transgender female that Johnson started picking up wins. Williamson, meanwhile, has been racing in the women's category since at least 2017, earning 18 titles. But in 2020, she appeared to compete in both the men's and women's categories at the Sky Express Winter Criterium, where she won first place as a woman, yet did not place against the men. Her latest victory inflamed critics who believe transgender athletes have an unfair advantage over biological females. Despite this, we go back to June of this year when US Senator Ted Cruz tried hard to get perspective and answers from human rights campaign activists to acknowledge whether men or women are different. Robinson could not answer yes or no, so Cruz asked why have women's sports at all? 
If you can't define a difference between women and men, why not abolish women's sports and just tell little girls to swim with little boys and see who wins? Oh, I'm simply saying that um, that sex My is different question, than gender. Why and I do, do believe why that women's, do women's sports, sports have a great exist? value. I mean, Senator, I'll tell M- you right Ms. now. Ms. Robinson, please answer the question I'm asking you. Absolutely. Why do women's sports exist? I think that there are so many positive benefits to sports. But I mean, why have a separate category for women? If, if, you, if there's no difference between women and men, why to have women's sports? I'm saying that there's a difference between sex and gender and that the NCAA has rules in place, which they have for the so last Mr. decade. Mr. Chairman, I, I would like to enter into the record an, an article from Duke, Duke Law called Comparing Athletic Performances for the Best Elite Women to Boys and Men. And it goes through examining in 2017 the top records for women in the world in various track and field events. So, for example, in the 100 meter, the top record for women in the world was 10.71 seconds. Now, that record for the number one woman in the world in 2017 was in the year 2017 broken by 124 boys under 18. In that same year, the record for the number one competing woman in, in, in the 100 yard 100-meter dash in the world was broken by a total of 2,474 men. If that is beyond obvious, the argument from the left are seemingly limitless. Here is Pennsylvanian Congresswoman Summer Lee trying her best to make detractors feel and look stupid, but Riley Gaines was having none of it. Such as teamwork and goal setting. In terms of mental health, studies show that participating in youth sports is associated with lower rates of anxiety and depression, lower amounts of stress, higher self-esteem and confidence. Women must stop. Inclusion cannot be prioritized over safety and fairness. And Ranking Member Lee, if my testimony makes me transphobic, then I believe your opening monologue makes you a misogynist. Thank you. However, Fatima Goss-Graves, the CEO of the National Women Law Centre, has also encouraged trans inclusion in sport and makes a very odd claim about learning to lose. The reality is that like their peers, trans girls and women, they sometimes lose at sports and sometimes they win. And success in school sports depends on a whole range of factors, including how hard you work and coaching and access to really good resources and facilities. And trans students participate in sports for the same reason as their kids, because it is fun, because it creates belonging and community, because it teaches so much about persistence and leadership and and discipline, unless they learn to lose gracefully, hopefully. Why is being fair so unfair? Why is being a natural-born female under attack and expected to trade off the definition of being female just to be inclusive to others who must redefine being female and pick up enormous advantage, the antithesis of fairness in the process? Now, earlier this week, we reported on Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton suing Pfizer for misleading Texans with its claim of 95% efficacy, that which under the stress of losing one's job was deceptive in that it was anything but. Here is part of his conversation with Tudor Dixon this week. Uh, The federal government long ago, back in I think the, the, the 80s, passed a law that gave protection to pharmaceutical companies when they provided vaccines there's no liability, complete protection. However, under state law, uh, they don't have those same protections. We have a Deceptive Trade Practices Act, and that's what we're suing mm-hmm. them under, arguing that they did not tell our consumers in Texas the truth 
and therefore there are damages because they, they didn't tell the truth about the effectiveness or the potential side effects of the vaccine. And I, we were just talking, something you said really struck me. You said, I noticed that when they were pushing it really hard and they were saying, we're only safe if we all get it, even though historically we're safe if we get it, then we shouldn't care about what everybody else is doing. That was kind of that first red flag that was raised for you. But the real kicker here is that they said it was something like 95% effective. And then people who got the vaccine were getting sick right away, right? That's what you're suing. For. Yeah, it, because we think the number 95% was not a true number. It wasn't an accurate number. It wasn't a reliable number. And they knew it. That's our argument. They knew that it wasn't a reliable number. And therefore, they misled consumers about the effectiveness. So people are making healthcare decisions that are pretty important. And they're taking on a vaccine that hasn't really been tested. And we don't know the, the, the long-term effects. Yet they knew some of the potential side effects and they knew that it wasn't 95% effective. And so people are making their decisions based on believing that Pfizer is telling them the truth. And of course, then the Biden administration came in and started threatening people with their jobs. And we had other you know cities and states doing the same thing, forcing people to get this vaccine. And it was based on false information. And that's a real problem because it has long-term consequences for consumers in Texas. What could be the outcome of a lawsuit like this? Well, for us, it's uh, for every violation, which potentially is every time they, they lied or every time it affected a consumer, it's $10,000 per violation. That number can add up pretty fast because since we have you know 30 million people, uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I think we've got a legitimate chance of at least getting more information about what they actually uh, which, what, what they actually knew at the time and what they told consumers at the time. And if those were not true, there are damages associated with that. So we're now witnessing not one, but many officials around the world calling out Pfizer for lying. And in another interview with a group of doctors, including Australian doctor Melissa McCann, Pfizer whistleblower Brooke Jackson made another heartfelt plea regarding scientific fraud. One point that I'd, I'd really like to make is that patience is, is really the thing that I've, I've learned here um, to have. Mm -hmm. um, every day we learn something more um, and although I, I was typically an impatient person, you know, I, I, I want, I know that it's wrong. Um, I've seen it. I have looked at it. I've studied it. It is all wrong. Um, but it's, it's just, it's hard knowing that it's hard to keep going knowing that how much more fraud can we prove? Yeah. Um, what, what more do you need to see to get the shot pulled, pulled from the market? Now, there's crime, there's apology, there's penalty, there's compensation. But don't expect an apology soon or even ever, says Tucker Carlson. It's just not what they will do. Here he is explaining exactly why. Ever notice how the bigger the tragedy is, the harder it is for the people responsible to apologize? If I rear-end your car and crease your bumper, I'm happy to jump out and say, I'm sorry, I can't believe I did that. But if I were to say invade Iraq under false pretenses and kill a million people and spend a trillion of your dollars doing it, I wouldn't say a word. I would never admit that was a bad idea. I couldn't. It implicates me too profoundly. The same goes for if I say locked your kids inside for a year 
and destroyed their brains and prevented them from getting an education. Or if I say forced you to take a vax that didn't work, that very well might have hurt you. I could never admit that I did that. I just couldn't. Because if I admitted it, I'd have to suffer the consequences. The consequences they will be. A post on X today professing the rise of conspiracy theorists as the last bastion of the powerless. The poster was lamenting in the joy that these people lack power, and that is what made them the way that they are. Does that mean that anyone without power who speaks out is a conspiracy theorist too, like a child in Gaza or an Aboriginal child presenting to hospital with a strain of gonorrhea that his parents share? Reminds me of the slogan that I often quote that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Never let them hold you down. Now for the final act. Democrat Senator Dick Durbin last week blocked a subpoena request for the release of the Epstein flight logs. Meanwhile, Robert F. Kennedy has explained to Jesse Waters the circumstances that got him on Epstein's plane twice some 30 years ago. You weren't ever on Jeffrey Epstein's jet, were you? Yeah, I was on Jeffrey Epstein's jet two times. I was on it uh, in 1993 and I was on it in and I went to Florida with my wife and uh, two children to visit my mom over Easter. Um, my, my wife had some kind of relationship with Glenn Maxwell and they offered us a ride to Palm Beach. So I went then and then on another occasion, I flew again with my family with I think four of my children and, um, and uh, and Mary, my wife, to Rapid City, South Dakota, to go fossil hunting for a weekend. And uh, but other, otherwise, I was I was never on his jet alone. I you know I've been very open about this from the beginning. This was in '93, so it was 30 years ago. It was before anybody knew about Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, you know, his nefarious issues. And I agree with you that these, all of this information should be released. Um, and we, we should get real answers on what happened to Jeffrey Epstein and any of the high level political people that he was uh, involved with. All of that should be open to the public. It should be absolutely transparent. And, you know, I don't see why any of those records would have any redactions in them. Why would we be hiding that from the American public? Well, you might Meanwhile, here is that same person, Dick Durbin, the one who blocked the subpoena for Epstein's flight records. Here he is now explaining and proposing how to allow undocumented immigrants to be allowed to join the U.S. military. What troubles me about the debate now about the southern border is that it is one half of the immigration equation. Yes, we need order at the border. Yes, we need to have changes in the laws that reflect the reality of the overwhelming numbers from all over the world who are coming to our, our shores and our border. But there is also an incredible demand for legal immigration into this country even now. The presiding officer, my colleague from the state of Illinois, has legislation which addresses one aspect of that. Her bill, and I hope I describe it accurately, says that if you are an undocumented person in this country and you can pass the physical and the required test, background test, the like, you can serve in our military and if you do it honorably, we will make you citizens of the United States. 
Do we need that? Do you know what the recruiting numbers are at the Army and the Navy and the Air Force? They can't reach their quotas each month. They can't find enough people to join our military forces. And there are those who are undocumented who want the chance to serve and risk their lives for this country. Should we give them the chance? I think we should. What could possibly go wrong? I cannot believe what we're seeing now in the halls of Congress in the United States to believe that the same people who warned against the COVID vaccines in the military are now the ones suggesting that those people are not even allowed to be thought of, but the undocumented immigrants that in many cases the military goes out to fight against are the ones to join the military. Meanwhile, in sad news, Prince Constantine of Liechtenstein has died unexpectedly at the age of 51. He was the youngest of the reigning Prince of Liechtenstein's three sons and seventh in line to the throne. A statement released by the Principality's Royal House confirmed the tragic news Wednesday. The Princely House regrets to announce that HSH Prince Constantine passed away unexpectedly on 5 December 2023 at Red. Constantine was the youngest son of Prince Hans Adam II. He leaves behind his wife, Princess Marie, and his children, Prince Moritz. Princess Georgina and Prince Benedict, no cause of death has been given. The prince's wife and children have not yet commented on his sudden passing. Constantine was, as I said, the seventh in line to the throne when he passed behind his brothers, hereditary Prince Aloy and Prince Maximilian and their respective children. The senior royal married former marketing executive Marie in a civil service in May of 1999 with a religious ceremony two months later. And radical environmentalists have blocked traffic in a big city CBD as part of a rolling protest action designed to draw attention to see why many see climate change as this existential threat to humanity. Extinction rebel protesters who believe the world is burning up under climate change marched in Melbourne's CBD on Thursday morning under police guard, calling for an end to fossil fuel consumption and more radical action on scaling back the world's industry. Protests disrupted peak hour traffic at 8am on Exhibition Road before the police moved the protesters back onto a footpath. The police threatened to arrest protesters if they did not comply with the order to move off the street. The extinction rebellion tactic to block traffic and grind cities to a halt has been deployed in cities across the world, including London, where the group has organised mass sit-downs on bridges and streets. It doesn't feel nice to do it, one protester told Sky News, but the reason we are doing it is because it has been 30-plus years of no action. Thursday's March protests from a rolling protest from the group, what they've determined or termed a December rebellion that is going to run from December 5 to December 10. Truly extraordinary what we're witnessing all around the world without any evidence that we can actually see apart from the usual storms. You've got one side of the world complaining about chemtrails and weather manipulation and the other saying, no, no, it's just the humans doing it. But at what price do we look at the idea of the earth or humanity? It even led recently to Elon Musk saying in a debate over artificial intelligence with, uh, with, with the founder of Google that when he was standing up for human, he was called a speciesist. Imagine that. You can't even stand up for your own species in the world of woke. And with that, we'll conclude today's edition of Compass. Coming up next is Chris Smith. I'm Jason Olborn, and this is TNT Radio. Oh,